Roe v. Wade goes down in flames, but there's a lot more to this than you realize. Today, on this special edition of The Grid. The Grid. A digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans. This is Chris Coleman, your host with the Kingdom Patriot Group. Welcome to The Grid, where faith, politics, and commerce intersect. Sean Griffin here with the Kingdom Patriot Group. We have a vision to restore America to her foundational principles. To help you do your part to restore the country, is there a particular topic we could cover that you would find helpful? If so, email us at admin at kingdompatriot.us. That's admin at kingdompatriot.us. We'd love to hear from you today. Welcome to the Midweek News Update. Joseph Kennedy made it a habit after football games to go to the 50-yard line and pray. It was voluntary and personal. He didn't ask or demand that someone go with him, but because faith is important to many people, he started drawing a crowd. And afterwards, an atheist complained. Bremerton School District gave him an ultimatum, one that Kennedy refused, so he was summarily fired. After which he sued, and ultimately the district court and the Ninth Circuit both ruled in favor of the school district and gave summary judgment to them. The case ended up at the Supreme Court. On Monday, a 6-3 ruling in favor of Joe Kennedy's constitutional right to prayer was affirmed with Neil Gorsuch writing the majority opinion. And I quote Justice Gorsuch. Joseph Kennedy lost his job as a high school football coach because he knelt at midfield after games to offer a quiet prayer of thanks. Mr. Kennedy prayed during a period when school employees were free to speak with a friend call for a reservation at a restaurant, check email, or attend to other personal matters. He offered his prayers quietly while his students were otherwise occupied. Still, the Bremerton School District disciplined him anyway. It did so because it thought anything less could lead a reasonable observer to conclude, mistakenly, that it endorsed Mr. Kennedy's religious beliefs. That reasoning was misguided. Both the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment protect expressions like Mr. Kennedy's, nor does a proper understanding of the Amendment's Establishment Clause require the government to sing out, single out private religious speech for special disfavor. The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression, for religious and non-religious views alike. Well said, Justice Gorsuch. Well said. Another win for religious liberty. That's number two in the past 10 days. Probably what's most concerning out of this is the fact that the district court and the Ninth Circuit so adamantly ruled in favor of the school district, and once it got to the Supreme Court, the three liberal justices once again saw the freedom of religion as something that is secondary to everything else. In other Supreme Court news, SCOTUS is expected to rule soon on West Virginia versus EPA. I won't go into much detail here, but suffice it to say this. This case is essentially about whether an executive agency such as the EPA can, in fact, create laws apart from Congress. Most conservatives for years have known that agencies wield tremendous power because they are run by non-elected officials and they write regulations in the background to implement past, legis past legislation. However, under Obama, agencies like the EPA were known to be given free reign to create rules and regs that Congress never intended. We will see if the Supreme Court concurs this to be acceptable 
and constitutional or unconstitutional. More to come on that. In major political news, it was reported this week that 1.7 million voters switched their party affiliation. 600,000 Republicans decided to become Democrats. But 1.1 million Democrats became Republicans. Do you realize how huge that is? The net impact is an increase of 500,000 on the Republican registry and a loss of 500,000 folks on the Democrat registry. Folks, that's a net swing of 1 million voters in favor of the Republicans. That's huge. It's just further evidence that this red tsunami is building momentum for November. For this week's midweek update, that's a wrap. Now to our special edition topic, Roe v. Wade. Okay, first a disclaimer. I am not an attorney. I'm not a legal expert. I'm just a layperson who takes a very keen interest in law, especially as it relates to the Constitution. Keep that in mind, as I think you will find this discussion today most interesting. So to truly understand the most recent Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson that overturned Roe v. Wade, you really have to understand the original case, how it was ruled, and why it, from a constitutional perspective, was horrible case law. So we're going to dive into that. The history and the evolution of the quote-unquote federal right to abortion began with this 1973 Roe v. Wade case. In that case, Norma McGorvey, the actual name of Jane Roe, she filed suit against Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade, wishing to terminate her pregnancy. She filed suit in March of 1970. She was challenging the Texas laws that made abortion illegal. And even though she won the case, she never actually had the abortion. A lot of people don't realize this because obviously the Supreme Court did not finally rule on the case until January of 1973, almost three years later. She gave birth and gave her child up for adoption. Norma became active in what Rush Limbaugh used to refer to as the Now Gang. That's the National Organization for Women. Ironically, Norma later became a prominent pro-life voice in 1995 after becoming a born-again Christian. Although, in her words, it's questionable whether she was really pro-life or even pro-abortion, probably more likely middle of the road. She did claim on her deathbed that her pro-life support was, was in fact an act, that she didn't really mean it, but when she was advocating for abortion... She would often call Pastor Taft after drinking at night and confess that the playgrounds were empty because of her. A very complicated woman, one who definitely suffered from guilt. There's also a great article in The Atlantic that talks about many previously unknown facets of the story, including the Roe baby, the one that was not actually aborted but actually given up for adoption. Norma, a.k.a. Jane Roe, actually lived a kind of a weird life, very complicated. In her teenage years, she was known to be very loose and slept with many men. Although many people confess, at least according to that article, that she was really more of a lesbian than anything else. And a result of that, that loose sexual life actually had three children. They were all given up for adoption. The one that was at the heart of this case, the one that she ended up having uh, after she filed suit, was Shelley Lynn Thornton. But anyway, I digress. Norma was poor, and if she'd been able to afford travel and actually get an abortion, she likely would not have been the poster child plaintiff that she ultimately became. But because she was poor, she was the perfect trophy to be used by this sinister movement. So in the particular case of Roe v. Wade, the state of Texas argued this. That number one, states have an interest in safeguarding health, maintaining medical standards, and protecting prenatal life. I think we would agree with that. They argued number two, that a fetus is a person protected by the 14th Amendment. And third, protecting prenatal life from the time of conception is a compelling state interest. Jane Roe and her lawyers, on the other hand, 
They argued that, number one, the Texas law invaded an individual's right to liberty under the 14th Amendment. Number two, that the Texas law infringed on rights to marital, familial, and sexual privacy guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. And number three, that right to an abortion is absolute. A person is entitled to end a pregnancy at any time, for any reason, in any way they chose. Now, I find this pretty interesting because actually Jane Roe and the state of Texas both were looking at the 14th Amendment, but from very different perspectives. The state of Texas was saying is basically that baby is not allowed to have their life terminated because they haven't received due process. Whereas Jane Roe was arguing the 14th Amendment applied because of privacy. So we'll get to that. So in the ruling of the case itself, the court split the difference. The court ruled, number one, that the United States Constitution provides a fundamental right to privacy that protects a person's right to choose whether to have an abortion or not. But they also said, number two, the abortion, the abortion right is not absolute. It must be balanced against the government's interest in protecting health and prenatal life. So the constitutional right, as I just mentioned, actually to privacy, as the court ruled, comes from the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Due Process Clause does not explicitly state that Americans have a right to privacy. However, the Supreme Court has recognized that right going all the way back to the late 1800s. And just one year before Roe, the Supreme Court held that in a constitution for a free people, there can be no doubt that the meaning of liberty must be broad indeed. In Roe v. Wade, the court decided that this right to privacy extends to individual control over pregnancy. Now, there were additional arguments at which life began in this case, which is really challenging because in some face, I think, um, I think Judaism, is, in fact, life is thought to begin at birth. But in Catholicism and most Protestant Christianity denominations, life is recognized at conception. Doctors, if you pull them, will sometimes fall somewhere in the middle. Therefore, the court developed a framework to balance both the state interests and the individual's privacy rights. This is how the court settled on the three 12-week trimester parameter. The takeaway from Roe v. Wade, however, is that it wasn't exactly a right to abortion. It was an implied right to privacy in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment that created the right for anyone to have an abortion, but with arbitrary limitations. If you're scratching your head because this sounds like legislature, you would be correct. Most constitutional originalists would agree with you. We will look at a couple of other related cases before dissecting this past week's ruling when we return. Well, I would tell you about the Kingdom Patriot podcast, but you're already listening to The Grid as we speak. So instead, I ask you, are you sharing The Grid with your family, friends, and neighbors? Well, you should be. Otherwise, how do we grow our audience? Well, we do it by fine folks like you sharing The Grid on your social media, in your email, or in that ancient mode of communication known as face-to-face conversations. We love to hear about young men and women who are engaged and want to join our fight for faith and freedom. So today we have a quick shout out to Nolan Jankoviak. Nolan, we know you listen. We appreciate your support. Tell your friends that you were here today on The Grid. And remember to click that little like button on your podcast platform and make sure you are following us. Also, don't forget to go to kingdompatriot.us and put your name on our email subscriber list. Now, back to today's topic. Okay, the evolution of legalized abortion in the United States Obviously, it did begin with Roe v. Wade in 1973, but it did not stop there. SCOTUS actually revisited this in 1992 when the case came to them of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The court did uphold, it's still upheld, that the individual's right to an abortion, but they changed the framework. The three-trimester standard was abandoned, and instead, fetal viability now became the new measuring stick. Fetal viability is generally referred to as a fetus's ability to survive outside the womb. 
And viability, certainly, I guess at that time, is usually placed at around seven months, 28 weeks, but can be as early as 24 weeks. Now, if you're like me, you're asking questions like, but wait, is the court arguing when life begins? How is that possible when so many disagree? Wouldn't fetal viability change over time as technology improves the ability for medical personnel to care for a premature baby outside the womb? Yes, you would be correct in asking those questions. Moving along, in 2016, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt case. Texas had passed a law that required a doctor who performed abortions to have admitting privileges at the nearest hospital no more than 30 miles away. Now, while I supported the idea, it was clear that this move was to reduce the number of abortions in Texas. And because of this requirement, Texas went from 42 abortion clinics to 19. Many doctors did not were not within that 30-mile range. Well, the case reached the Supreme Court around the time of Justice Antonin Scalia's death, so only eight justices heard this particular case, and in a 5-3 decision, the court found that states cannot place restrictions on abortion clinics that create an undue burden for women seeking an abortion. Thus, the undue burden standard was born. So if you kind of look at these three cases from 1973 all the way to 2016, you do see the evolution of the abortion from a legal perspective. First, abortion became a right because it was part of privacy as due process in the 14th Amendment. But then it came with arbitrary standards of the three trimester standard that then that was abandoned for fetal viability. And then later that was modified to also include undue burden for access. So that's kind of how we ended up where we are. So that brings us to last week's ruling by the Supreme Court declaring that Roe v. Wade is now overturned in the case Dobbs v. Jackson. For this analysis, we will rely heavily on the comments of Justices Alito and Thomas in this 213-page ruling. So we're first, we're going to start with Alito. And I'm just going to read some of his direct quotes. Quote, For the first 185 years of the adoption of the Constitution, each state was permitted to address this issue in accordance with the views of its citizens. Then, in 1973, this court decided Roe v. Wade, and even though the Constitution makes no mention of abortion, the court held that it confers a broad right to obtain one. It did not claim that American law or the common law had ever recognized such a right, and a survey of its history ranged from the constitutionally irrelevant to the plainly incorrect. And after cataloging a wealth of other information having no bearing on the meaning of the Constitution, the opinion concluded with a numbers, numbered set of rules, much like those might be found in a statute enacted by a legislator. Now, did you remember what I said earlier that the abortion case sounds a lot like laws and not actually rulings, like they were acting in the case of legislator? Alito touched on that in this. That's a pretty scathing rebuke. Alito continued, as Justice Byron White aptly put in his dissent, the decision represented the exercise of raw judicial power, and it sparked a national controversy that has embittered our political culture for a half century. So Alito continued, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. The right to abortion does not fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown in American law. Indeed, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, three-quarters of the states made abortion a crime at all stages of pregnancy. The abortion right is also critically different from any other right that this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty. 
Rose defenders characterized the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage. But abortion is fundamentally different, as both Roe and Casey acknowledged, because it destroys what those decisions called fetal life, and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. And finally, in the last comments that I'm quoting from Alito, he says, Stare decisis, the doctrine on which Casey's controlling opinion was based, does not compel unending adherence to Roe's abuse of judicial authority. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy, by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. That is what the Constitution and the rule of law demand. Those are powerful words from Alito. Scathing rebuke. He, in essence, is saying, this court found a right that does not exist and just made it up. Justice Thomas is no less succinct. So let's take a look at some of his comments. Quote, I join the opinion of the court because it correctly holds that there is no constitutional right to abortion. Respondents invoke one source for that right, the 14th Amendment's guarantee that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The court well explains why, under our substantive due process precedents, the purported right to abortion is not a form of liberty protected by the due process clause. Such a right is neither deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, nor implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Then Thomas adds this. He wants to make a very significant point. I write separately to emphasize a second, more fundamental reason why there is no abortion guarantee lurking in the due process clause. Considerable historical evidence indicates that due process of law merely required executive and judicial actors to comply with legislative enactments and the common law when depriving a person of life, liberty, or property. Other sources, by contrast, suggest that due process of law prohibited legislatures from authorizing the deprivation of a person's life, liberty, or property without providing him the customary procedures to which free men were entitled by the old law of England. Either way, the due process clause, at most, guarantees process. It does not, as the courts of substantive due process cases suppose, forbid the government to infringe certain fundamental liberty interests at all, no matter what process is provided. As I have previously explained, substantive due process is an oxymoron that lacks any basis in the Constitution. If I can pause for just a second, what Thomas is saying is, the due process saying is that there is a process that the government has to go through if they're going to deprive you of life, liberty, or property. It doesn't guarantee rights. It says that you have a right to a process. So let's continue. The notion that a constitutional provision that guarantees only process before a person is deprived of life, liberty, or property could define the substance of those rights strains credulity for even the most casual user of words. The resolution of this case is thus straightforward. Because the Due Process Clause does not secure any substantive rights, it does not secure a right to abortion. The court today declines to disturb substantive due process jurisprudence generally or the doctrine's application in other specific contexts. Cases like Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the right of married persons to obtain contraceptives, or Lawrence v. Texas, the right to engage in private 
consensual sexual acts, and Obergefell versus Hodges, the right to same-sex marriage, are not at issue. The court's abortion cases are unique, and no party has asked us to decide whether our entire 14th Amendment jurisprudence must be preserved or revised. Thus, I agree that nothing in the court's opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. For that reason, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Now, I think that's an important statement because I've already seen news articles that have said Justice Thomas wants to go back and rerule these cases. That's not how I read his comments. What I hear him saying is, this opinion is for abortion only. But as we go forward and we think about substantive due process that does not exist in the Constitution, we should not use these past precedents as a basis for applying it in future cases. That's how I read it. Now, like I said earlier, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a legal scholar. But after reading the opinions of Leto and Thomas, it seems very clear to me what they're saying. It's like, come on, man. The 14th Amendment is about making sure there's a legal and fair process that has to be adhered to before depriving someone of their rights. But it in no way, in any kind of language, secures specific rights, especially abortion. That's what I'm hearing. This is why Roe v. Wade was such a horrible case. It was horrible case law. It was its legislation from the bench. It created rights supposedly in the Constitution that clearly did not exist. And by overturning bad rulings via this case, Dobbs versus Jackson, the court rightly constitutionally returned the abortion issue to the states because there's no right in the Constitution specific, enumerated, or implied for abortion. If you live in California and you're comfortable with killing the unborn, you're going to be able to legislate that, as horrible as that is. If you're in Texas or Florida where you actually support and respect life, you will be able to do that as well. When we return, we're going to take all of this media information and start asking, what are the implications? You're listening to The Grid, a podcast production of the Kingdom Patriot Group. You can find us on the web at kingdompatriot.us. Join us in the fight for faith and freedom. Mondays on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, we're back. Remember at the Kingdom Patriot Group, we have a unique perspective in that we focus on faith, politics, and commerce because we think to ignore any of these is essentially playing whack-a-mole. So let's jump in with both feet. In regards to faith, this is a win. It's not absolute as abortion will still be legal where the hearts of the citizens so desire this evil practice. But let's be clear, the Lord is on the side of life. And I want to share some support for that. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Psalm 127, 3-5. Another scripture. When Jesus saw that he was indignant, he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Mark 10, 14-16. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1.5 For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. And lastly, 
Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18.21 Clearly, the Lord places tremendous value on children and the unborn as he speaks about life and how he formed you in the mother's womb. From a faith perspective, anything we do to save the life of the unborn is a win. From a political perspective, this is a whole different story. This is all-out war. You are seeing active calls for protests, riots, and an overt, out-in-the-open violence. This should surprise none of us. If I said many times, abortion is an act of violence, and it's been committed some 65 million times over the last 50 years. The radical extremists, the folks that are pushing this agenda, this issue, have committed this violence for a long time. But now they're just redirecting that violence to those who are already born. But at least we can protect ourselves far more than the innocent unborn child. From my perspective and point of view, I think you're going to see two things happen. I think they're going to happen rapidly, and it will be loud, and it will be in your face. And the first one is that the Democrats, knowing they face a potential epic shellacking this November, are going to attempt to redirect the entire focus of the country of the election to this issue. They will attempt to bury inflation, bury the economy, bury foreign policy, bury the cost of gas and food, and make abortion the single election issue this November. I personally think this is going to be a hard sell for them, because every time you go to the pump and you pay $5 a gallon for gas, you're not thinking of abortion. You're thinking, thanks, Joe. Nonetheless, we need to be aware of this tactic. But second, and I think this is much more dangerous, the calls to pack the court are going to reach a fever pitch. And again, because the Democrats know in the absence of some nefarious illegal activity or an outright miracle, they are going to get their heads handed to them in November. So to pack the court, they have to do it now. Once the Democrats lose the majority in the House and Senate, it's going to be basically over for this administration. So to pack the court, I'm guessing the Senate will have to completely nuke the filibuster. To do that, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are going to have to be on board. I don't think they are, but we need to make sure we contact our representatives and senators early and often on this and let our voices be heard. And lastly, the commerce perspective. Oh my. Now we're going to reference Planned Parenthood a little bit for a couple reasons. Number one, it's estimated that Planned Parenthood provides at a minimum a third of all annual abortions in the United States, making it by far the largest organization performing infanticide. Their own numbers tell us that abortions in the first trimester cost about $750 and beyond that $1,500. But let's be conservative here and just use the $750 number for all abortions. So how many abortions do you think have been performed since Roe v. Wade? This is going to floor you. According to research, that number is likely just north of 65 million. This is equivalent today that if we decided to exterminate the entire populations of Louisiana, Kentucky, Oregon, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Utah, Nevada, Puerto Rico, Iowa, Arkansas, Mississippi, Kansas, New Mexico, Nebraska, Idaho, West Virginia, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Montana, Rhode Island, Delaware, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, District of Columbia, Vermont, Wyoming. We would still be 3 million deaths short. Do you get the magnitude of this? At only $750 per pop per procedure, we are talking almost $50 billion. That's how much money has been made off abortion procedures that I can calculate on the back of a napkin. Don't you dare tell me for a minute 
that money and commerce don't play a part in this. While Planned Parenthood is supposed to not use any federal funding for abortion, we know how this works. Did you know that this organization gets 600 to $700 million per year of your tax dollars? Yeah, you heard that correctly. Your tax dollars, to the tune of a half a billion dollars, is going to an organization that performs one-third to one-half of all U.S. abortions. Let that sink in. There is huge money to be made in abortions. They are quick, they're easy, and it's a real problem. It's legalized murder. So as we kind of pull all this together in summary, what does all this mean? How does faith, politics, and commerce work together? Well, through prayer, and I mean much prayer, we have a Supreme Court that ruled constitutionally in a way that will save lives. But the left is already looking for every workaround they can find. The work has only begun because we now must work at the state level to save lives, to outlaw abortion and make sure that murder in the name of convenience is costly financially, politically, and legally. Before anything, though, let's thank the Lord for his grace, but then continue to fight on our knees. So I'd just like to take a moment and have you pray with me. Lord, I thank you for the Supreme Court ruling. I thank you, Lord, that children are going to be better protected today than they were yesterday. I also want to call out, because I haven't done so in this podcast, Father, I want to call out anyone who's actually had an abortion, Father, for them to experience your grace. I am not pointing at them. I'm not pointing at them with guilt. I'm really pointing at the agenda. But I want everyone to know, Father, who's committed an abortion and lives with the guilt and shame of that, that they can find healing at the cross. And I pray, Father, you would break through that wall of shame, hurt, and pain. I also pray, Father, that we would not be lackadaisical. I pray, Father, that we would not rest on our laurels. We're going to celebrate for this one brief moment, Father, that we have seen your grace come through. But Lord, let this fight continue, the fight for life, the fight for the unborn, to protect those, Father, who are too weak to protect themselves. Lord, I pray for the hearts of the people to be turned. I pray, Father, for people who are so adamant about this right, Lord, that you, just as you did with Paul, that something like scales would fall from their eyes and they would see the truth of your spirit. They would see the truth, Father, of what this horrible thing really is. We pray that you would move in the hearts of the people, Lord. Help us be humble. Pray for humility, Lord, that we would hate the sin and love the sinner. That we would speak truth, Father, but we would approach in grace and mercy. Lord, lead us and guide us and show us, Father, how we can do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for taking a minute and just praying with me. That's really all the time we have for today. I really appreciate you joining me on this special edition of The Grid, especially for such a weighty and important topic. Don't forget to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. Your membership is appreciated. Your input is valued. Your voice is needed. Oh,